Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Welcome to the last episode of this year, which also happens to be the last episode on the Creed. So by the end of this episode, we're going to be a quarter of the way through the whole catechism, which is just wild to me. So the topic of this episode is death (laughs) and what happens after death. So Merry Christmas. (laughs) Actually, Happy New Year. This is perfect for New Year's because we can sit here for half an hour and think about hell and heaven and then we can go make our New Year's resolutions. No, seriously, though, it is actually really important that as Christians we think about death. And it's important for two reasons. First of all, it's like a kick in the pants, right? It reminds us that we have limited time on this earth and that we got to get a move on. But also, and kind of more importantly, on the flip side, The reality of death reminds us that we are not made for this life. This life will end, but we're made for eternity. And that puts everything into perspective. So I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. It's such an amazing idea. I, I often come back to it that, you know, when we realize that we have an immortal soul and so does everyone around us, all of our worries and concerns and ambitions about this life just seem so much smaller and so much more manageable, you know. It's like when you look back on, on your final year of high school. I remember when I was in year 12, which is our final year in Australia, and everything felt so intense and so important and everyone was talking about, you know, who was going to top what subject and who was going to be the ducks of the school and who was cool and who was the school captain and who was dating whom. And it, it was just ridiculous. And I remember leaving school and going to uni and within like the first five minutes, you realize pretty quickly that no one is ever going to ask you ever again for the rest of your life what your year 12 exam results were. No one cares. That doesn't matter. No one cares if you were the school captain or if you were cool in high school. And now I look at students who are in their final year of high school and I want to like grab them by the shoulders and be like, you don't understand. Life continues after this. Now, that's not to say that all of year 12 didn't matter. Some of it really didn't matter, like who was cool. Like that stuff is gone the second you walk out the door. Other stuff, though, it is important, but it's only important insofar as it influences everything that happens afterwards. So what do I mean? Well, what I mean is like your exam results, for instance, they mattered not as an end in themselves. They didn't matter because they gave you social capital or just arbitrarily because you got a good mark. They mattered because they got you into the university course that will shape the trajectory of the rest of your life. So it's the same with us. When we think about death and what happens afterwards, all of those things like career and friendships and relationships and ambitions... They only matter insofar as they help us and the people around us to get to heaven. And the way that we measure what's important or impressive in this life is completely different to how those things are measured in heaven. So there's this book by C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorite books of all time. Everyone should read it. It's called The Great Divorce. And it's basically this kind of allegorical story about a bunch of souls at the gates of heaven. 
Anyway, there's this moment where the narrator is standing there with his kind of spiritual guide watching all of these souls and he sees this woman appear and he's just blown away by how beautiful she is and she just radiates joy and she's got like angels dancing around her and scattering petals and it's like a procession in her honor and he turns to his guide and he's like oh my gosh like this woman she seems to be someone really important and the guide is like yeah she is she was one of the great ones and the narrator's getting excited he's like oh my gosh wow who is she like tell me i must know who she is and the guide says well when she was alive her name was sarah smith and And she lived in an obscure little municipality in England and no one knew who she was. (laughs) And that's it. And it's like, by Earth standards, this woman was a complete nobody. But by heaven standards, she's just one of the great saints. And it's such an important reminder for us that at the end of the day, I mean, sure, have a satisfying career and a successful career and lots of friends. But let those things be your path to heaven rather than an end in themselves. So that's why it's important to regularly pray and meditate on the fact that we are one day going to die and that something will happen after death. So what is that something? What will happen after death? Well, the Catechism tells us in point number 1022 that each person receives their eternal retribution in their immortal soul at the very moment of their death in what we call a particular judgment. So basically what it's saying is that when it comes to our eternal life, there are only two options, God or not God. Now, if we die in a state of grace, in other words, if we are open to God and we've said yes to him in our lives, then our reward for that is God. So it's it's like getting the ice cream flavor that you asked for. If we say yes to God, then we get God. And conversely, if we consistently and on a fundamental level say no to God in this life and we don't repent of that, then what we get when we die is not God. So, okay, what does that look like? Not God. I'm, I'm starting with not God because I'm one of those people who always eats their veggies first and I want to end this on a high note. Okay, so let's go back to one of the very first ideas that we started with in this whole podcast in one of the, I think it was the very first episode, the idea that the human person is made for God. And as such, we have this fundamental inbuilt desire for him that cannot be switched off because it's part of who we actually are, what we are. So St. Augustine says in his famous quote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So let's think about it. On a physical, material level, what happens if you cut yourself off from something that your body is built to need? Okay, so like oxygen, for instance. Like if you tried to cut yourself off from all oxygen, I mean, obviously you couldn't, right? You would die. The problem is the soul cannot die because what is death? Death is when the life principle leaves the body and the body breaks down into its component parts. But the soul is that life principle, so it can't be removed from itself. And it also can't be broken down into component parts because it's not a material thing. It's not made up of parts. So it can't die unless God annihilates it. Now, imagine if your body couldn't die and then you cut it off from oxygen. Just think about how absolutely 
agonizing that would be. I don't know if you've seen that movie called The Prestige. I love that film. And there's that opening scene, so this isn't a spoiler, opening scene of the film where Hugh Jackman drowns in that glass case full of water right at the beginning. And it's just horrible to watch because you can see the agony in his face, that agony of suffocation and drowning. So that's kind of like what happens to the soul when we cut ourselves off from God. We're cutting ourselves off from the one thing that we need, that we're built to need. And in fact, that image of someone drowning or suffocating, that doesn't even do justice to the pain of hell for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, you ask anyone who has ever experienced both physical and psychological suffering, and they'll tell you that, you know, that kind of existential pain is so much worse than physical pain because it attacks you right at the core of your being. It sort of rips your insides out. And as well as that, in this life, all suffering that we experience coexists in some way with goodness and vice versa. So we have never experienced totally unadulterated pain in the total absence of good. So think about it. If you're feeling grief because, you know, someone that you love has died or maybe you have really bad depression and you just feel horrific... Even in that moment when you're in the depths of despair, good things still exist in the world around you. You know, the sun still exists. You can feel its warmth on your face. Somewhere, you know, in the back of your subconscious, you are aware that your mother loves you. But once we die, we can choose to cut ourselves off from that grace completely. And that is when we would experience that total absence of any goodness. And and that's what we call hell. Now, one thing that's been kind of implicit in what I've been saying, but it's worth making explicit, is the fact that God doesn't send people to hell. We send ourselves to hell. And this is a kind of common misconception. People will say, you know, it's really not fair for God to punish people like that, to just, you know, flick them into hell because they've done the wrong thing. And it makes sense that we would assume that, you know, God sends people to hell because when we first look at it, it doesn't make any sense that we would send ourselves there, right? Like if you think about the total absence of all goodness and total suffering, it's like, who would choose that? Why would anyone ever do that to themselves? Well, actually, if we return to that movie, The Prestige, we can see a really good example of how this might happen. Now, okay, this bit is going to be spoilers. So if you don't want spoilers, then skip ahead about 30 seconds. Okay, so in The Prestige, Hugh Jackman's character chooses to drown himself every single night. Every night he goes through that agony of drowning because he is proud. He will literally kill himself in order to come out on top. And he's not always like that. Like you see at the very beginning of the film how he starts out a really happy guy and really wholesome and he's got a wife and he's so happy. And then he becomes obsessed with revenge and with being the best magician ever. And he ends up losing all of his friends, all of his family. His girlfriend leaves him. He's just completely depressed and alone. And in the end, he's drowning himself every night in this tank of water just so that he can have revenge and be the greatest magician in the world. So you can look at him at that end point and think, you know, who would do that to themselves? But it's actually so easy to slip into bit by bit if we get into the habit of choosing our pride and our ego and ourselves over what's good and what's right. And it's actually really easy to get into the habit of saying no to God and saying yes to our pride. And if we keep doing that and we start to say no to God in big ways and we're committing serious sins, what we call mortal sin, 
and we haven't repented of those sins when we die, we haven't accepted God's mercy, then we will end up separated from him by our own free choice. Like that's something that we have done to ourselves. Now, that's not to say that every person who commits a sin, even a serious sin, is going to go to hell. If we commit a sin, we can always say sorry to God, go to confession, accept his mercy and be reunited with him. And this is kind of the state that a lot of people are in, where where we consistently are falling, but we're also genuinely trying to seek the good. So Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, in his encyclical Space Salvi, makes the following point. He says, For the great majority of people, we may suppose, there remains in the depth of their being an ultimate interior openness to truth, to love, to God. So basically what he's saying is that many, many people, and hopefully most people, are fundamentally open to God, and they're not going to be completely cut off from him when they die. However, that's not to say that they're also going to shoot straight into heaven. So Benedict XVI goes on. He says, In the concrete choices of life, openness to God is often covered over by compromises with evil. Much filth covers purity, but the thirst for purity remains. So he's using some pretty intense language there. But basically what he's saying is most of us genuinely seek God. We genuinely desire him, but we have this kind of attachment to sin that we can't seem to to shed. Now, what happens to people in that state when they die? So they're not going to hell. They're not completely cut off from God's grace, but it also doesn't seem like they're quite ready for heaven yet either. Like, think about it. Obviously, we're not going to be sinning in heaven. Like, that's impossible. We won't even want to commit any sins in heaven. But think about yourself currently. Think about all of the little sins that you freely commit and are not even commit, but are attached to. You know, unless you're an actual saint and you're fully purified and sanctified in this life, we all have attachments to sin, even when we're not actively committing sins. Like, if I were stranded on a desert island right now, I probably wouldn't have many opportunities to commit, you know, certain sins, but I might still be attached to those sins. And that affects the state of my soul. Now, if I died right now, something would have to happen between death and heaven to free me of that attachment to sin. And on top of that, and we talked about this in in a past episode, I think it was the one on the cross. If I break my mum's vase, she might forgive me, but I still have to glue the vase back together. So even if I'm saved, even if I'm in a state of grace and I can go to heaven, I've still committed sins that have been forgiven, but haven't been fully made up for yet. So all of this suggests that there must be some kind of purification between this life and heaven, if we haven't already been perfectly sanctified in this life, which some people are, but the majority of us aren't. And this purification is what we call purgatory. Now, to me, the idea of purgatory makes perfect sense. Like, I don't know about you, but I would not want to enter heaven in the exact state that I'm in right now. It would be like, you know, in Mean Girls, when Lindsay Lohan rocks up at the party dressed like a zombie bride and everyone's completely horrified. That would be me rocking up at the gates of heaven. So C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Would it not break the heart if God said to us, It is true, my son, that your breath smells and that your rags drip with mud and slime, but we are charitable here and no one will upbraid you with these things, nor draw away from you. Enter into joy. Should we not reply, 
if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleaned first. So basically what he's saying is that it makes logical sense that we would want to be purified. Like if you rocked up at a party in in a dress with a huge wine stain on it, you would want to clean it off before you went inside. And this is something that St. John Henry Newman also explores in a poem called The Dream of Gerontius, which I'll put in the show notes if you want to read it. Now, C.S. Lewis goes on to say that the process of purification will probably involve some kind of suffering. And that makes sense, right? Like most purification involves cleansing or burning something so that it becomes cleaner. Like you think of when you were a kid and you scraped your knee and it had to be cleaned with that antiseptic that really stung. Or C.S. Lewis uses the image of going to a dentist and having your tooth pulled and then having to rinse your mouth out with an antiseptic. So purification hurts. But the important thing to bear in mind is that the suffering of purgatory, while it is intense, like I don't want to play that down. By all accounts, it burns. The souls in purgatory know for sure that they are going to heaven. And that gives them great joy. Now, the church doesn't have any particular teaching on exactly what this purification process might look like or might involve. But I really like the way that Benedict XVI writes about it in Space Salvi. He paints this really beautiful picture of what purgatory might be. He says, some recent theologians are of the opinion that the fire which both burns and saves is Christ himself. His gaze, the touch of his heart, heals us through an undeniably painful transformation as through fire, but it is a blessed pain in which the holy power of his love sears through us like a flame, enabling us to become totally ourselves and thus totally of God. I absolutely love that image of that like purifying fire. And to me, it it brings me back to all of the stuff that we've been thinking about with the cross and resurrection and the mystery of suffering and how it is bound up in joy, that purifying, sanctifying suffering that we experience in this life when we suffer and that also we will experience in purgatory if we have to go there. Now, not everyone has to go to purgatory, but whether we go to purgatory or not, Anyone who dies in a state of grace, their reward is that they get to be in the presence of God for all eternity. Now, that idea might sound a little bit boring (laughs) to some. And, you know, you hear that sometimes. It's quite a common objection, especially like in small children. They talk about how the idea of heaven sounds really boring. There's a bit in um, one of the Anne of Green Gables books where this little boy called Davy is talking to Anne. And he's, he's saying like, he's like, I don't know if I want to go to this heaven place. He's like, my friend keeps saying that in heaven, everyone has to wear dresses and we all have to play the harp and that it's always Sunday so we can never do anything fun. He's like, I don't want to go there. So if that's how heaven strikes us as kind of boring and unattractive, we're probably falling into one of three errors. Thinking of God as an imperfect and finite being, thinking of heaven as a physical space, or thinking of eternity as just a really long time. Okay, let's unpack each of those errors. First of all, thinking of God as imperfect and finite. Now, think of any human being that you know and love. So maybe your spouse or your best friend or your sibling or your parents. No matter how much you love that person, no matter how wonderful and how perfect they are to you, If you had to spend a million years only hanging out with them one-on-one, you would probably start to get a little bit sick of them, no matter how great they are. And that's because they aren't perfect. They can't make you completely happy. There will always be things missing from that relationship. 
and they're also finite. So at some point you're going to run out of stuff to talk about and it's going to get boring. And so we can sort of think of God like that. We're like, well, it's like a relationship with a person and people get boring, so God will get boring. No, it is literally impossible, literally impossible for us to get sick of God. God is the fullness of all possible truth, goodness, beauty, and joy. We cannot get sick of happiness itself and truth itself. Now, the second error of thinking of heaven as a physical space. So this is something that Pope John Paul II talked about over the course of a few of his Wednesday audiences when he was the Pope. And it became like a big thing. It was like published in newspapers and people were like shocked at it. But it seems completely logical and makes a lot of sense. So John Paul II says, Heaven is neither an abstraction nor a physical place in the clouds, but a living, personal relationship with the Holy Trinity. So when we die, we're not going to like float up to the clouds and then sit on a cloud and play a harp forever. That's not what heaven is. Of course, if we want to use images of places to imagine heaven, hell and purgatory, like a pit of burning fire and, you know, clouds in the sky or whatever, if that's helpful to us, of course, that's completely fine. And it's not that heaven, hell and purgatory can't be physical places. They could be. It's just that that's not the point. Ultimately, what heaven is, is a relationship with the Trinity. Okay, and then thirdly, this error of thinking of eternity as just a really, really long time. So I love the way that Archbishop Michael Sheehan puts it in a book called Apologetics and Catholic Doctrine. He says, Eternity is not a multiple of time. No number of squares superimposed will give a cube. (laughs) So basically he's saying, you know, you can't just line up a million squares and be like, oh, it's the same as a cube. No, they're completely different. A cube has a whole other dimension to it. And in the same way, eternity isn't just like a series of moments in time lined up against each other. Eternity is like one single dynamic experience of the fulfillment of all of our desires. So it's not static. It isn't boring. It's not like standing in front of a painting for eternity. It's more like if you dove into an infinite ocean and you were swimming around in it, the ocean isn't changing as you swim through it, but you're constantly discovering more of its infinite beauty and goodness. So that's what our experience of heaven will be like, constantly discovering more dimensions of God's infinite beauty and goodness. But it won't occur in sort of sequential It's one moment, but it is a perfect, dynamic moment that never ends. Now, I know that that is an insufficient description, but one of the things that Pope Benedict XVI says in Space Salvi is that we can really only know heaven, hell, and purgatory via not knowing, via negation. Like, we can't possibly really conceptualize what eternity is like. We can only kind of come a little bit closer to it via allegory. So that's what we're trying to do here, just get a little bit closer to understanding. Now, Will every person who goes to heaven have the exact same experience of heaven? No, they will not. So if we return to this idea that life on this earth is important insofar as it prepares us for heaven, while we're alive on this earth, every action we carry out, every decision that we make, it's like we're shaping our soul into a vessel that will receive God's grace. Now, if I spend my life saying yes to God, being receptive to his grace, being open to his will, listening to the Holy Spirit, by the time I get to heaven, I will have shaped my soul into this nice big roomy water tank that will just receive God's grace. Now, on the other hand, if I spend my whole life doing the bare minimum and being generally pretty closed off and not receptive to grace, even if I repent of my sins and I eventually do go to heaven... 
my soul, the shape of my soul might look more like a thimble than a water tank. Does that mean that some souls will be unhappy or insufficiently happy in heaven? No, not at all. No matter how small or how large the vessel is, God will fill it to the brim and then overflowing. Every soul will be completely satisfied, completely happy insofar as they are capable of being in heaven. It's just that some will be more capable than others. And I mention this because it's a really helpful reminder of the fact that we can't just rest on our laurels in this life. We can't sort of think it's a matter of being saved or not saved. So, you know, oh, ultimately I'm open to God's grace, so I'll be fine. I'll get to heaven. That's the main thing. Once we die, our soul can't change its shape, even though it can be purified through purgatory. That's what this life is for, for shaping the vessel. So you think of it like if you made a, like a bowl, a small bowl out of clay, Once you put it in the kiln and you fire it, its shape is fixed. And then after you've fired it, you can clean it or you can paint it or you can put a glaze on it, but you cannot change its shape. And it's the same with souls. God has given us this life so that we can shape ourselves for heaven. And then once we've gone through that kind of kiln of death, our shape is set for eternity, even if we can be purified. And this is also a reminder for us to be apostolic. Like if we look at our friends, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, well, you know, she's doing pretty well. Like she's not an axe murderer. (laughs) Like I'm sure she'll be fine. I think she loves God or she seems pretty fine in her faith or whatever. But we want more for our friends than for them to just get to heaven. We want them to rock up at the gates of heaven with a swimming pool, not with a thimble. So we have to desire and to pray for that grace for ourselves and for the people we love, not just to get to heaven, but to be saints, to arrive, to rock up at the gates of heaven, to skip right over purgatory and rock up with like the biggest vessel we could possibly imagine and be like, I'm ready. I'm ready for eternal life. Now, earlier we said that every soul at the point of death experiences what we call a particular judgment. So that's when I am judged on what I've done in my life and it becomes clear whether I've chosen heaven or hell. But the catechism and also the Bible talk about another judgment called the final judgment. And this will occur at the end of time. So we see this, for instance, you know, in the Gospels, when Christ talks about separating the sheep from the goats at the end of time. Now, this idea of like a final judgment, it always sounded kind of weird to me. It was like, why do we have to be judged twice? Like, I've already been judged. I'm already in heaven. So why do I then need to be judged again? Okay, so let's clarify what this final judgment is. The final judgment is not just a repeat of the particular judgment. So the Catechism puts it like this in point number 1039. It says, In the last judgment, we shall know the ultimate meaning of the whole work of creation and understand the marvellous ways in which providence has led everything towards its final end. So basically... In this final judgment, it's not just about me and what I've done and whether or not I'm in heaven or in hell. Like, I'm already in heaven or hell. That's not the question. The question is, what was my role in the entire economy of salvation? In all of the history of creation, how did I fit into it? And it'll be like God unveiling the whole completed puzzle to us and saying, like, see, this was the meaning of everything. This is why I did that. That's why you suffered in that way. That's why you met that person and then you were friends and then that happened there. That's why. Look at this perfect, beautiful, wonderful tapestry that I've created. So it kind of makes me think of, like, you know, an Agatha Christie novel, if you've ever read one of those. It's like there'll be this mystery and the whole way through you're getting kind of 
like little bits of information and vague clues and you kind of have an idea of what's happening, but you don't get the full picture. And then at the very end, Poirot, the detective, he like assembles everyone in the one room and he goes through and he shows you the whole picture. He's like, that was happening over here when that was happening over here and this is why and then you're the culprit. Now, this is not to suggest that God is some kind of, you know, egotist who's keeping information from us and keeping everything really mysterious because he wants to do his grand reveal at the end of time. No, the reason why this final judgment occurs at the end of time is that that's when the final thread will be put in place. Like, that's when the tapestry will be complete. He can't show us the whole picture when the picture isn't complete. But as soon as it is complete, as soon as time has ended, he'll be like, yes, great, here it is. It's finished. Look, this is this is what we made. God will reveal to us the meaning of everything and the full implications of everything that I did in my life, which is terrifying. <laughs> Now, another thing that will happen at the end of time is that God will also reunite every single person with their human bodies. But as with Christ's resurrected body, our bodies at the end of time will be perfected and glorified. So St. Paul says in the first letter to the Corinthians, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So basically, our resurrected bodies are going to be epic. Archbishop Sheehan talks about how our glorified bodies will be transformed and ennobled. He says the body will become inaccessible to pain, disease, or death. Its senses and faculties will be raised to nobler capacities. I don't know about you, but that sounds freaking awesome. I want want that body. I can't wait for that. And this is the thing. When we worry about this life passing away or ending, and we, like, we sort of want to cling to it and all of its little concerns and all of its victories, which we so often do, when we do that, we're acting like crazy people. It would be like if you insisted on staying in your final year of high school for the rest of your life and you were never going to leave high school or never going to graduate because you were school captain and you were scared that you'd never experience anything that good ever again. You know, it would be ridiculous. And that's not to belittle the joys and the happiness that we experience in this life. Of course, those things are good. But if those things are good, think how much greater everything else that is promised to us will be. You know, if we stick close to God and we say yes to his will, it's only going to get better from here on out. And on that note, I am going to go make my New Year's resolutions. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast. I have so enjoyed unpacking the first quarter of the Catechism with you this year, and I can't wait to begin part two in a couple of weeks. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.